This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and Yukon Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, a show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and welcome on this Leap Day 2020. And it's great to be with you today on this Saturday. Uh, We have a great show planned today. Uh, My guest in the studio today will be Dr. Peter Robinson. Dr. Robinson is a cardiologist uh, at UConn Health, and we're going to spend time talking about uh, Women's Heart Health Month. It's at the end of the month. Obviously, it's the leap day, but I didn't want to let it go by without spending some time talking about heart disease in general, but also heart disease in women. Uh, we can't get by with the show without talking about the coronavirus, so we're going to talk a little bit about that and how it affects us here in Connecticut. And uh, let's start with this day in medicine, February 29th, 1820. So the leap day, 1820, Dr. Louis Albert Sear was born. Now, Dr. Sarah was, he was the father of American orthopedic surgery. And he's called that, actually, he was one of the founders of Bellevue Hospital Medical College in 1859. I had no idea. I did not know Bellevue Hospital had a medical college. Now, I knew they were famous. They had a, probably the best nursing school in the country um, in the 1800s. But I never knew they had a medical college at Bellevue, uh, especially having grown up in New York. And Bellevue Hospital is still there. It is the principal city hospital for New York City. Uh, but Dr. Sears also, he invented a jacket, the Sears jacket. And this is a jacket of plaster that he used to treat patients with scoliosis and POTS disease. POTS disease is a disease of the spine. And what he would do is he would hang the patient in traction, so in a vertical traction, and, and something we still do today. Instead, now we have these uh, gravity chairs, right? So you get in the chair and they turn you upside down. But anyhow, he would stretch the patient out and then put that by suspending them, would attempt to straighten the spine and then put them in this tight cast, uh, which was around their torso. So it's very interesting. He also uh, was one of the people who really invented treatment for hip joint ankylosis. So people had such bad arthritis in their hip and they couldn't move it. He developed a lot of therapies for that. So we remember on this leap day, Dr. Louis Albert Sayre. Um, Obesity is still a huge deal. The statistics this week that came out talked about that currently 41% of all Americans are obese. Now, what's striking about that is in 2015, it was only like about a third, it was about 33%. So this has really gone up. And we know that obesity is a huge crisis. And I'm going to use the word, I don't use the word Christless loosely here, but leading to heart disease, diabetes, and all the things that really are impacting our medical system today come from obesity, what we put in our mouth, what we use to fuel our bodies. So Everybody wants the magic bullet, right? 
an operation, a pill to take to avoid it. It really comes down to diet and exercise, watching what you eat and getting regular exercise. The human body loves to exercise in some way, shape, or form. So I urge all our listeners to really get involved in some form of regular physical activity. So the coronavirus. This story just keeps growing, and now the politicians are involved. Okay, so we know we're not we're not going to get anywhere with them, right? We've the president's had a press conference. Everybody else has jumped on. So let me tell you who to listen to. Doctor Anthony Fauci. Doctor Fauci is that little Italian man with gray hair. Okay, he is a scientist. He is somebody who is respected throughout the medical community, not just about vaccines or infectious disease. He is a neuroimmunologist, and he presents facts. That's science, not fake news. And I find it hard to believe that anybody's going to silence him because he has been forthright in the scientific community. So when you see Dr. Fauci speaking, whatever channel it is, pay attention. Um. And, and try to ignore all the pundits and the politicians as they get involved. I know, the, you know, the vice president now is in charge of stamping out coronavirus. Uh, in other words, people are going to try and leverage this. But let's understand a little bit. When we think of the flu and we think of coronavirus, similar symptoms and similar ways to get them. On this program, we have always said year after year to combat the flu. What do you do? Wash your hands. Avoid personal contact. So hugging, kissing, shaking hands. Even in church, we've talked about going to church. In fact, at the Vatican, they are emptying the holy water fonts. So nobody's using holy water to put their hands in to go in and out of church. They're getting rid of receiving Holy Communion under two species. Nobody's drinking from a chalice now. Okay, so... We have to modify our behavior and our rituals in order to avoid the flu and subsequently the coronavirus, something more deadly. So don't believe the other statistics saying, oh, it's only like getting the flu. It is not. It is much more deadly than the flu. Now, here's one thing you can do to help this is make sure you're protecting yourself against the flu. Make sure you've gotten the flu vaccine. Why? Does the flu vaccine protect you from coronavirus? No. It protects you from not having to go to the hospital and tie up valuable medical resources that we need for people who do get the coronavirus. It also keeps you healthy. And our latest statistics this year, and we've always heard the years the vaccine didn't help, it wasn't that effective. Well, this year it was effective. The number of physician visits for the flu has gone down dramatically this flu season versus other seasons. So as much as we're critical when they don't get it right, they got it right this time. So we need to still be on guard against the flu and subsequently against the coronavirus. And then we'll leave it to the scientists who are most expert in this to guide us. Big questions out there, right? Should we even have the Olympic Games this year? Do we want to go to Japan and be around large crowds for the Olympic Games? I don't know. We've got time to figure that out. Are you planning a vacation? Where are you going to go? Start 
changing things you do. One of the things we started doing at our house is we've got one of those Purell Purell things, a little pump as you come into the house in the mudroom, and we use it a little bit more than we would otherwise. Um, When you go out and you're going to stay at a hotel, start wiping things down. It's not a level of paranoia that's unheard of. So with that, I don't want people panicking. I don't want us thinking this is the apocalypse. It's the end of humanity. It is not. But as intelligent human beings, we need to take precautions. And then let the politicians tell us it's not a problem. It is a problem, whatever they say, and listen to people who know what they're talking about. And we'll continue to let you know on this program what the facts are when it comes to these viruses and how to protect yourself. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Peter Robinson from the University of Connecticut. We're going to be talking about heart disease today. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. If you'd like to shoot me an email, you can do that at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and uh, we have a caller. Elizabeth had a comment for us. Hey, Elizabeth. Yes, hi. Good morning, Dr. Anthony. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, You mentioned Dr. Fauci or somebody regarding the coronavirus, but I have no idea how to spell that, so I'd like to know, please. F-A-U-C-I. Fauci is how it's pronounced. First name, Anthony. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. So it's you. No, it's not me. I'm oh, Anthony okay. Alessi. Same first name. Okay. Same first <laughs> name. St. Anthony of Padua. Yeah, listen, yeah. we're Italian, okay? There's an Anthony oh. and a Vincent in every family. So what can I tell you? No, that's fine. So uh, S-A-U-C-I, and that starts with S as in Sam? F, or F, F, is, F as in Frank. Perfect. Yeah, uh, excellent, excellent. Um and I imagine if I Google him, I'll find some more information. You will find a lot of information on Dr. Fauci. Excellent. And my second question, if I may, you mentioned that 40 or some percent of Americans are obese. What yes. is the definition of obesity with that wow. statement? Great question. So we use the term BMI, um, body mass index, to determine obesity. So the definition of obesity is a BMI of over 30. Okay. Okay. So the BMI, and you can look it up on the internet. You enter your height and weight, and it gives you a BMI. So okay. over 30 means obesity. Anything over 25 is overweight. Over 35 yeah. is, uh, ex- is extreme obesity, and then morbid obesity is over 40. Okay. Gotcha. So they use a lot of different terms, but the key. The key number is a BMI of 30, qualifying as okay. obesity. Okay? Because myself, I'm, I'm skinny and I'm small, so I don't know what my number is, but I'm sure it's fairly low. Google it but and I you would... put it right in there. Because it'll also I'll... tell you what too low is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I may have been there in the past, but I think, think I'm fine now. But I was just stunned to, to hear 40%. 41%. me, sounds like... <clears throat> You weigh, as an average kind of height person, you, you are just weighing at least maybe 100 pounds over your ideal weight. I mean, is that a roughly 
it, it's hard to sure. tell. It's based on height and weight. So I would recommend just Googling that and going to it, and, and you could see. And you'll get an idea as you put different numbers in. Now, where it doesn't count is some people are very muscular, right? So and, and, and may be short. That doesn't mean they're unhealthy. Sure. So there are a lot of different ways of calculating. But for the average person, when we look at a medical record, right. we look at the BMI. So listen, if, thank you. Thank you for your call. Can I ask one more question? Sure, go ahead. Question. If you exclude that 40% and you look at the, the, the uh, heart disease, et cetera, and other issues that, you know, occur, you know, that cause a lot of death, those numbers are probably way down then if you exclude that 40% of the population. Great question for our guest. Peter, right. why don't we get you to just jump right in here on Elizabeth's question. I'm going to hang up, and then we're going to answer Thank the question. You. All right. Thanks for calling. God bless right. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So uh, let's talk about it. Heart disease and obesity. At what point should people start worrying? And, and I guess it's it's more than just that factor, but it is a factor. Can, can you answer her question from that standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good question. Thanks for having me, um, and I'll do my best. It's 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 like most things in in life and and in medicine it is complicated it's not as simple as saying only people who are overweight or obese get coronary disease um and if you aren't overweight and you don't um if you aren't overweight or, or obese you don't get coronary disease um there's something actually referred to as the obesity paradox that actually um is is somewhat unexplained we don't understand why some people who are obese actually don't get coronary disease what we do know is that if you're overweight or obese and still um, perform exercises every day and actually eat healthy, because everybody's different and everybody's body type is different, you can actually still be somewhat healthy from a cardiovascular standpoint. And we clearly know that people who are normal weight but eat poor diets and don't exercise and smoke, for instance, um, have a high incidence of cardiovascular disease. So it's not just the weight in and of itself. It's usually associated factors, and there are other factors that 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 weigh in. So, since we're on the topic, when you look at these risk factors for coronary artery disease, we've seen a huge decline in smoking in this country. When we think about it, over the course of the past forty or fifty years, has that impacted the number of people we see with cardiac disease? Because we know it has impacted lung cancer. Has it impacted cardiac disease? I think it's hard to put an exact number on it, yeah. um, but what we do know is that with this decrease in smoking incidence, as you pointed out, um, at the same time, with as as the rates of obesity have increased, the rate of cardiovascular disease has actually decreased, or at least the mortality from cardiovascular disease has decreased over the past 10 years. Small numbers, but it hasn't continued to increase. It actually has, though, relatively speaking, increased in younger individuals. And that seems to parallel this rise in obesity in young individuals. So there is some concern. So at the same time, there is some good news that the overall cardiovascular mortality mm -hmm. rates have actually decreased due to deep probably, probably, I can't say for sure, nobody can say for sure, probably related to decreased smoking rates, better medicines, better medical therapy, maybe closer follow-up. Um, even though there's been an increase in the rate of obesity, um, there has been an increase in the mortality rates and rates of MI in younger individuals that seems to parallel a really significant increase in obesity rates and related type 2 diabetes. That's probably the big thing that puts people who are overweight, who have a, suffer from obesity, when they develop metabolic syndromes and have 
sure. actual type 2 diabetes, that their cardiovascular rates really increase. Let's talk a little bit about you. I, sure. I think most people know, but what is a cardiologist? Let's talk a little bit about your training and how you got here. Sure. Start from the beginning or just from cardiology? Well, or? Start wherever you'd like. <laughs> sure. Um, so I went to, um, I went to medical, medical school at the University of Virginia. It was there that um, I was interested in cardiology, possibly also because my background in undergrad was in mechanical engineering, and that sort of lended itself to understanding cardiovascular physiology. From medical school, um, I decided to go into internal medicine, partly because I knew I wanted to do cardiology. So you have to do a residency for three years in internal medicine. I then stayed on in, as a what's called a chief resident to sort of help teach the residents for an extra year. And after that, uh, you apply for a fellowship, so you have to subspecialize into cardiology. That is typically a three-year fellowship. Uh, and during that time, I, I elected to also do a, an extra subspecialty fellowship in interventional cardiology. So there's an extra year doing that. So we, when you're a cardiologist, you you try to focus your, your care of the patient in their cardiovascular disease, whether it's high blood pressure or arrhythmia, such as atrial fibrillation or evaluation of chest pain. But... Um, those are the things you focus on, but you're generally a medicine doctor as opposed to a surgeon that may specialize in cardiothoracic surgery. So let me ask you a question. How many years are we talking here after college between medical school, residency, and two fellowships? How many years would you say you put in before you got to be an attending, seeing patients on a regular basis at a university? Well, I, I may have taken a long route, but if you include uh, medical, medical school, it's 12 years if you include medical right. school. Right. So people always ask me, they say, well, you know, I, I'm just happy. I see a mid-level person, you know, mid-level. I have a PA or an APR. And, and people have to understand there's 12 years difference there. Um, now, I, I'm not, I don't want to be critical of somebody, but when you have a specialized problem, when it gets to a certain level, you need to get to a specialist in that field. And hopefully you have a primary care provider, whether it be a PA, APRN, or MD, who realize that there's a certain level of care you need to get to. And especially when it comes to cardiac disease and doing interventional cardiology like Dr. Robinson. So we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back here at WTIC on Healthy Rounds. The phone number's here, 860 860- Five two two nine eight four two and one eight hundred nine six six nine eight four two. When we come back, we're going to be talking about heart disease in women. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk ten eighty. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and uh, we got a. Got a good, we got a question here from Mark. I'm going to grab this one. Mark, welcome to the show. You had a question for us. Hey, doctor. Thanks for taking my call. Hey. So I recently found out I have an enlarged chest cavity, probably from not taking care of bronchitis soon enough and letting it go. Um, I tell you, I get a flu shot, but I was wondering if for myself and others that may have this condition, would a, a pneumonia shot be beneficial, a vaccine be beneficial uh, in case the, the coronavirus I was to catch that or others were to catch it, does it help at all? As far as preventing lung issues or further, or, you know, uh, sure. worsening any condition or lung issue. How old are you, Mark? 50. Okay. Good question. Peter, why don't we talk a little about, we, we know the pneumonia shot is not going to help coronavirus or the flu because it's, it's, right. it's bacterial. But in terms of 
being someone at risk for pneumonia doesn't help? The pneumonia shot, that yeah. is? Um, as far as we know, again, I'm not an infectious disease specialist or a pulmonologist, but my understanding of it is that if you're at risk, and it sounds like, Mark, you, you probably are at risk, then it would reduce your risk of, of getting streptococcal pneumonia. Um, just like uh, the influenza shot doesn't keep you from getting influenza, but it keeps you from getting as severely sick as you would from influenza. Neither one of those would um, necessarily protect you if you're ever exposed to coronavirus, although anything that weakens your immune system um, would put you at more risk for catching anything else that's around. So that's an indirect way of protecting yourself. It does sound like, from what you're saying, if you've had chronic bronchitis and you've been told you have an enlarged chest cavity, it I can't tell, but it sounds like you might have um, something called COPD. Did they mention that term? I, otherwise, I'm not quite sure what an enlarged chest cavity might might mean. Is that what they're referring to? Do you know? They didn't. They didn't mention anything about. They said I was at higher risk for COPD. But gotcha. Okay. I, 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 I've tried to like research online after after I was diagnosed. Are they the same thing? Chronic bronchitis and COPD. Uh, probably not, but obviously chronic bronchitis, I think, could lead to COPD. So my initial thought is, one, talk to your primary care doctor. Second thing is, does the pneumonia vaccine help? Yes, it helps people who are over 65 to get it. That's the indication. And people who are under 65 who are at risk because of pulmonary conditions or other conditions. So it's worth the conversation uh, to keep you healthy and see if the pneumonia vaccine is going to be most healthy, for, uh, most helpful for you, Mark. Very good. Hey, Thank thanks you, for calling. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Peter, I, I, I want to get to the topic of heart disease in women. Uh, those of us here in Connecticut have been familiar with Denise DeCenzo, uh, outstanding broadcaster here at WTIC-TV, uh, and she's uh, WFSB, rather, and suddenly dies at age 60, without warning, no previous history of heart disease in her personally. And we've been celebrating Women's Heart Month and wear red for women on Fridays. Why the emphasis now on women and, and what, has, what has changed in our approach to heart disease? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I didn't know um, Denise, and I don't know the... the um situation around what happened. It sounds incredibly tragic, um, especially someone who I understand was healthy and, and dies suddenly is, is there's usually no words to um, express how sorrowful a situation that is. And, and I don't know what the situation is, but it is possible um, that she suffered some sort of cardiac event. And unfortunately, that can happen even in otherwise what appears to be healthy individuals. It's much more likely to happen in people who have uh, more significant risk factors, and I obviously don't know what her risk sure. factors were. Um, but I think it does get to the the question of how do you figure out what your risk factors are um, and how much risk you're at, and can you modify those risk factors? Only some of the risk factors you can modify. Some of them you, you can't. We can't stop the clock, right? Sure. Like, um, we can't change the genes we were we were born with, but a lot of the the risk factors are modifiable and talking to your doctor about what those are and what those can be and testing for what some of them are, such as your cholesterol level, is is, is a first good first start. So is is being a woman, to my knowledge, that's not a risk factor. But it we were always told that women didn't get heart disease, yeah. right? 
I think that's the important point. I think the, maybe the reason um, it's getting more attention over the past five to 10 years is 20 years ago, um, we didn't put enough attention on it, I think. Sure. Um, here's what we know. We know that men actually develop cardiovascular disease on average about 10 years earlier than women. Uh, estrogen seems to have a protective effect in that in that regard, actually. However, once once that 10-year lapse goes away after menopause, women then catch up with men to some degree. And so I think the 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 teaching back in the olden days um, that maybe women weren't as high risk um, sort of led the medical community to not pay enough attention. I think we need to pay more attention. And what I tell people is, listen, women can get cardiovascular disease just as much as men. Um, it may be delayed by 10 years, but it's it it can still happen, and it's still the leading leading cause of death in women um, overall in the United States. And I think we need to understand that. We need to recognize that they're just as as at risk as men, not more risk, but just at, as. Uh, at I don't risk. think I knew that that it is the leading cause of death in women. Yep. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the warning signs, because one of the things we hear about is. Women tend to be more likely to ignore the warning signs of a heart attack. Yeah, so so there's a it's a great question. Um, do women present with more atypical symptoms than men do, and is yes. that why that they are not aware that they have cardiovascular disease? And and that's actually been looked at, and and the data actually suggests that women can develop atypical symptoms as much as men can. So here's what we know. 90% of both men and women who have angina or some evidence of cardiovascular disease will present with some sort of chest discomfort or tightness. About 10% of people, both men and women, therefore won't. They'll present with maybe nausea or just shortness of breath or all of a sudden feeling weak and, and sweaty. Um, there was a trial looking at this because there was a concern that maybe we're missing cardiovascular disease because women presented with atypical symptoms. And the study actually suggested that women present with atypical symptoms about the same rate as men, actually. So, um, yes, they both can present with atypical symptoms. If you're not sure if your typical symptoms or atypical symptoms are from your heart or not, I, obviously I'd urge you strongly to talk to your doctor about them and see if uh, he or she is war concerned enough to have you see a cardiologist because sometimes it's tough to tell even for a cardiologist. Uh, so do we think, is there a different treatment? In other words, between men and women, do we treat it the same way? Or is there, do we have a different approach? For the most part, uh, the treatment is the, is the same. There are some subtle differences that we're starting to figure out. And there are probably a lot more differences that we'll figure out over the coming years um, that we're not smart enough to figure out now, both for men and for women. For instance, I just read some information that in people who have uh, reduced ejection fraction, so their heart is a pump, and if their heart is weak, we use certain medicines um, that can uh, reduce your chance of dying from that and can potentially even make, you, make your heart strong again. However, the data has been mostly looked at in men, and so we wanted to make sure that it was the same in women. And it turns out maybe they didn't respond quite as vigorously, and maybe they didn't respond to the same doses. In other words, they may not get 
as much of a benefit as men will at higher doses. And maybe mm-hmm. we shouldn't be pushing the doses of certain medicines in women as much as we did in men. So there is a differential effect, some of which we understand, a lot of which we don't. Wow. Okay. Um, we're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with the final segment with Dr. Peter Robinson. He's at the University of Connecticut over at the Pat and Jim Calhoun Cardiology Center. If you wish to reach him, the phone number there is 844-388-2666. And uh, that will connect you to the University of Connecticut. And you could ask for the Pat and Jim Calhoun Cardiology Center. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back to talk a little bit about the treatment of heart disease and the future treatment of heart disease. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back for the final segment of Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today we're chatting with Dr. Peter Robinson. Dr. Robinson is from the Pat and Jim Calhoun Cardiology Center at the University of Connecticut, um, Rick, you have a call. You had a question for us uh, about atypical symptoms of heart disease. Well, I just want to relate my own personal experience with my wife on that to stress some of the things we've learned in sure. respect from that. Um, my wife uh, all of a sudden was experiencing uh, fatigue, and it it was um, consistent fatigue, and it was um, it, it it got progressively worse. And it was a type of fatigue when she woke, would wake up in the morning. She would look more tired in the morning than she did when she went to bed. And so we both had the same GP. And, and um, it took, uh, and the doctor thought it was vitamin deficiency, vitamin D. And so he was dealing with that. But it progressed over a four-month period. And um, he couldn't, and, and there was really no other diagnosis and one day, all of a sudden, it just uh, was the end of the day, and she looked a little bit more fatigued than usual. And I went to do some errands, and she was with my daughters. And then I went to see, you know, visit, go back to where my daughters were with her, and she wasn't there. And I said, where's mom? And she goes, oh, she got real, real tired, real, real nauseated, and just wanted to go home. She just wanted to go home. So I immediately, I said, you know, that's, that's not usual for her at all. Mm-hmm. So I, I went home. And she was collapsing in her room and just and you're having a heart attack. And, and uh, she couldn't do anything to help herself. And uh, we just got her to the hospital as soon as possible. And the doctor just said in about 10 more minutes. I mean, she's been going through this for like two hours. And, you know, she, we've got to get her up into the catheterization wow. unit. And it took, it took two and a half hours to put three stents in her main coronary artery. And that's the only place where she had the plaque buildup. And, and, you know, that was three years ago, and, and, and she's been fine, you know, uh, all things considering. How old, uh, how, old is, how old was your wife when she had that, Rick? Uh, that was, uh, she was 62. Okay. And, and she's not really, you know, back then she's not really overweight or anything, you sure. know, or, or anything like that. But it, it took, it happened all within two hours. Um, but there, there, if, and we were told, we were told, you know, once she went to the cardiologist after all this and, and we, we kind of debriefed on it, you know, the cardiologist said if, if we were to have put her on a, a stress test with an EKG, mm-hmm. um, that would have picked up on it because she had an EKG through all this in the four months and the EKG did not pick up sure. on anything. All right. And, but, but if she was on the stress test, you know, the, uh, the treadmill while doing the EKG, it, it would have picked it up. And, um, and so that's, 
I mean, that was just a complete shock to all of us because, again, there's no heart history in on that side, you know, of her family. Uh, anything of her father, you know, lived to 95. Her mother lived to 90. You know, I'm, their hearts were strong. Um, she's not. She was a smoker, you know, early, you know, years ago when she was a teenager, but she quit by 20. You know, so smoking wasn't an issue. It it just was totally misdiagnosed over a long period of time, and she almost died as a result of that. Okay. Uh, yeah. I'm going to hang up, and then we're going to talk a little bit about this and the atypical symptoms. Thank you for the call, Rick. Oh, you're Pre- welcome. Appreciate it. Um, so atypical symptoms. I mean, uh, I guess not necessarily, it's hard to diagnose heart disease in general. I mean, especially when someone presents with fatigue and nausea. I mean, we start thinking of other things. So my question really for you is, at what point do you put somebody on a treadmill and do an echo stress? And maybe you could explain those tests a little bit and what they mean as opposed to the standard EKG. Right. That's a good question. And and, I'm really sorry to hear about what happened. Sounds like she ended up doing okay. But boy, that's a a tough one for for anybody, including the, the, the physicians involved. Someone with "Quote unquote," just fatigue can also can be from so many different things. I think if if I had the chance to talk to her, what I would have been looking for is how much of that is exertional, exertional fatigue. Sometimes just some, when you're doing things with exertion, sure. um, if it's making you tired, even if it's not causing chest tightness or trouble breathing, that can be a concerning f- sign. With regards to the EKG or stress test, so if there's enough to say, boy, I don't know what's going on, this could be what we call an anginal equivalent or an atypical presentation of nearings of your heart arteries, the EKG at rest, and I tell um, patients and residents and fellows this all the time, an EKG at rest when you're not feeling any problems is a pretty blunt instrument. It really is not very telling unless you've had a huge heart attack in the past that can be something that shows up. It's more for an arrhythmia than anything, right? Yeah, I think it, it can pick up arrhythmias sure. when you're having it. But again, if, if you're not having those arrhythmia symptoms when you do the EKG, Absolutely. that can be missed. And so uh, a plain old EKG when you're feeling okay is actually somewhat troubling. What a stress test is, is looking at that EKG when you're, quote unquote, stepping on the gas or, or pushing yourself. So you would try to most likely walk on a treadmill to some degree and see what happens to the EKG that's normal at baseline when you do that. And if there's narrowings in your heart arteries, it does an okay job of picking that up. If somebody's really symptomatic, like it sounds like she was, it should have, and, and it sounds like she may have had left main disease, it will show up on the on the stress EKG. You don't even need imaging, most likely, to, to pick up on that. But that's the difference between a resting EKG and what a stress test is, is doing the EKG under stress or when you're exercising. I guess in wrapping up in the last few minutes, what's coming in on the horizon? I know over at the Calhoun Heart Center. You guys are doing a lot of research and cutting edge stuff. What are some of the things we haven't heard about yet? It's a a great question. I think there's certain medicines on the horizon to help um, aggressively treat uh, different lipid abnormalities. Statin medicines are fantastic, but they don't always do enough of a job and they don't address um, the problems with good cholesterol that a lot of people have. And that's uh, sort of something we haven't been able to figure out as a medical community. I think within cardiology, um, the, the future is really bright and, and focused on structural heart disease. And, and that um, has to do with, um, quote unquote, replacing or actually implanting aortic valves for aortic stenosis uh, without surgery. And, and that's something that we're not doing yet at, at UConn, but we hope to be doing at some point in the near future, um, as well as also trying to fix in some way and I used air quotes there, 
um, they can't see on the radio, um, the mitral valve um, without surgery. So in the past, um, anything that had to do with your valves had to be treated with open heart surgery. It's a big surgery. It's a huge surgery. And anything we can do with less invasive methods uh, is important. And there's a lot of research and and being looked at in this area. And I think that's where the future is going to be, trying to minimize having open heart surgery. Peter, thank you. Thank you for the time you spent with us today, and thank you for all the work you and everybody else is doing over at the Calhoun Heart Center. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to our studio producer, Mike Oakle, has been on the board today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. If you missed any part of today's program, you can get it at Healthy Rounds Podcast, downloaded from iTunes. Next up on WTIC is going to be Garden Talk with Len. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.